Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone and welcome to Word Processing. My name is Josiah and I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. You know, the biblical authors are very clear that one of the foremost tools God has given us with which we can endure life in a fallen world is the ability to look ahead at what has been promised to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many Christians never pick up that tool. And for those that do, many don't know how to use it properly. What I mean is that many of us are actually kind of fuzzy on the details when it comes to the future. And so I wanted to talk about what the Bible says about things to come with the intention of bringing clarity to what lies ahead for Christians and thereby increasing our hope and endurance. And to help me to do that, I've asked Dr. Paul Benware to join me again on the podcast. Dr. Benware is a well-known and well-studied theologian and teacher who has written several books, including Understanding End Times Prophecy. Dr. Benware, welcome back. It's good to have you. Well, always to be back with you and and, uh, your people. It's a privilege. Well, how about we start here, right at the baseline, Dr. Benware, when we use the term eschatology, what are we talking about? What is the uh, definition of that big million dollar word? Okay, well, it it comes uh, as a lot of things do from the Greek language and uh, from the word eschatos, which has the idea of last or last things. So technically, eschatology is the study of last things, what we would call prophecy. However, um, when we use the term generally, we are talking about things that we believe haven't taken place yet. In other words, when we talk about eschatology, we usually aren't going back to Isaiah 7 or Micah 5 and talking about passages which prophesied the, the, uh, what we call the first coming of the Lord Jesus into this world. So when we talk about eschatology, it's usually having to do with things uh, from our perspective, starting with the rapture and moving through the tribulation and the second coming and then on into the eternal kingdom of God. So um, eschatology is basically looking at last things that haven't happened yet is really the gist of it. Excellent. So why is the careful study then of eschatology or last things important for churches and individual Christians to take up and spend time doing? If it is yet future, should we not be more concerned about the present? Look at all the problems in our world. Look at all this stuff around to do. Why bother looking ahead at future things? Well, if you back the train up just a little bit and ask another question, and that is, why is it in the Bible? I mean, obviously, the Spirit of God saw it was important, and that really is the key to understanding why it's there. And contrary to oftentimes what some people think, the book of Revelation is not the total discussion of what's going to happen in the future. God has, through the Lord Jesus himself and his teachings, through the writings of the apostles who were an extension of his own ministry of revelation, he has woven within the text of scripture all of these prophetic truths. And I think that biblical prophecy reveals the sovereignty of God, and it also reveals something of the fact that we are to be changed by it in the way we live. Now, it's important that we remember that God is sovereign. COVID-19 and a zillion other things did not catch God off guard. He's not in heaven saying, wow, never saw that one coming. 
He knows exactly what's going to happen, and he has his finger on the control button. Mm -hmm. And so these things are not catching God off guard, and he is working through the affairs of men and of nations to bring about the end result, which is the restoration of everything that was lost in Eden is going to be restored and, in fact, enhanced. So when you look at specifics, though, within the scriptures itself, you find that if I were to put it in one general term, the reason why prophecy is important is that it is to change us now in the way we think, the way we behave. Some years ago, I was talking with a pastor. In fact, I've had this conversation more than once. And he said, basically, look, I need to help my people live right now. And, you know, speculating you know, about how many warts on the nose of the Antichrist is not really that profitable to people. But I asked him a question, which looked at it, I think, from a little different angle for him. I said, do you want your people to live sanctified lives? Do you want them to become holy? And he had this sort of deer in the head like look like, <laughs> you know, now there is a dumb question. He said, of course. I said, do you realize that the primary reason why biblical prophecy is woven into the text of Scripture is to change the way we live right now? and to bring us towards God's great goal of making us like Jesus Christ in this world. And so that's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, then into chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, little children remain in fellowship with him so that when he appears, we may have confidence or boldness when he comes and not shrink away from him at his coming. Everyone who has this hope this hope of Christ's appearance, which is followed then by the time of evaluation, what we call the judgment seat, purifies himself, even as he is pure. We understand the blood of Christ alone cleanses from sin. But what John is saying is, uh, we are not going to let sin take a, a foothold, have a foothold in our life, take root there. We're going to deal with it because we know that there's another world coming and that is going to be coming into existence when Jesus comes. And a person who lives that way, lives differently, you make different decisions. Peter says, after talking about all the end time events in 2 Peter 3, he says, what sort of people ought you be, you know, in all holiness and godliness of conduct? So it does make a difference. If you have what I call a one world view, which is focusing on uh, what's taking place now, living better in this life, how to have a better marriage, how to have a better family, how to handle your finances better. Well, all of those things are significant. They have importance. But overriding it, we have to have a two-world view. And if anyone doubts that that is not the biblical worldview, you need to read Hebrews 11 very carefully. You need to read Philippians chapter 3, where Paul gives his philosophy of life. And in all of those cases, these people are in the hall of fame of faith because they looked for a world that was coming. And so it, it makes a huge difference. This whole idea that pie in the sky by and by and that you are too otherworldly, you know, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. I used to hear that one. And I've told people, I've never met anyone like that, never in my life. Anyone who has a focus on heaven lives a lot better in this world. They live more productively. They live with greater discernment on how they live life, spend their money, spend their time, and all of the rest of it. So it is to impact us, Pastor Josiah, right now on the way we live. That is really the, the thrust of biblical prophecy to change us today.
And that makes sense when you take in the rest of the biblical testimony as well. When you read things like this, life is a vapor in comparison to what is to come. Why would we not spend time thinking about where we will spend the vast, 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 vast majority of our existence? And when Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where nothing destroys them, there's obviously this two world view through scripture that should propel us to think similarly. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you can't really escape it in the teachings of the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Well, let me ask you the same kind of question from a different angle. And you touched on this a little bit, but I want you to flesh it out a little bit. What is lost if we allow ourselves to become apathetic to eschatology or things to come, which seems to be, especially maybe my generation, kind of characterizes us as Christians. We shrug at things to come. We shrug at prophecy, saying maybe it's too divisive to get into. And no one really knows. I've heard people call themselves pan-millennialists. You know, it'll all pan out in the end. So why do I even care? What is lost when we take that approach? Well, if I could be blunt, it seems to me, first of all, it's a diminished view of Scripture. What you're saying is that the Holy Spirit, when he led writers to write this down, was either on vacation when he was doing it and just wasn't thinking. You know, why, why put all that stuff down? And, you know, I've had people say to me, why do I care whether there's five trumpets that blow or six trumpets that blow? I mean, who really cares? And if they have any loyalty to the scriptures at all, I, I say, hey, watch it, watch it. What you're saying is that this is irrelevant and the Holy Spirit really blew it when he had John write this stuff down. But the other thing is that what, what happens is you are either as a believer having a two world view. You are living in this world with an eye on the world to come or as so much preaching from the pulpit even today is that it's one world. And what happens then is that the culture is going to have a far greater impact and far greater influence on what you believe and um, how you live. You know, I think even in this COVID-19 stuff, I'm sort of amazed when I see the fear that seems to be out in the world that, you know, if I get this stuff, I'm going to drop over dead in the middle of the street before I can get home. Or even in the lives of believers who they seem to be frightened beyond reason that if they contract this virus, that it's all over for them. Well, somehow it it seems to me that for me to live as Christ and die as gain is not what they're thinking at that point in time. Now, I'm 79 years old. I mean, Moses made it clear. I passed 70. So I'm, you know, life is going to get difficult. And when I hit 80, good grief, everything's going to fall apart. But you know what? We live day by day, my wife and I, and we focus on how we can serve the Lord today. And frankly, if the Lord should, um, I've never died before, so I've never had the experience. But if I do, I am absolutely assured that the next breath I take is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that beats, as we hear in the States, getting another stimulus check from the government, you know? So anyway, I think that you begin to become more and more and more influenced by the culture that we are living in when you don't have the two world view. It changes the way you live, the way you prioritize life, the way you handle your money. I mean, just everything is different. I really appreciate how you compare and contrast being conformed to the world or to scripture. And really, that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but right. be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's one or the other. And yeah. if we're not being transformed by what God has provided us, then we are leaving ourselves open to be transformed from the world. Yeah. And I, I certainly see that with a lot of the saints here south of the border, 
And that is that there's just this sense of uh, being anxious. And I understand life is not always easy. And I'm not pretending that we, we just kind of breeze through life free from trials. Peter says that when we are distressed by trials, so he certainly understands what it can bring. But I guess what troubles me is just what I hear from the mouths of believers is not much different than the mouths of my unsaved neighbors, you know. That ought not to be. There ought to be something distinctive about what our relationship with Christ does for us. Let's pretend for a moment that I'm a new believer and you've just convinced me that the study or the consideration of things to come as revealed in scripture is important to my Christian life. I'm wondering if you can take me now through a timeline, starting with where we are right now to the things ahead, to the eternal state. What can I expect? What is coming ahead for me and every other person that trusts in Christ? For the believer in, in Christ, I think it's helpful for us to view what lies ahead for us in uh, three distinct phases, following what I think is the wedding ceremony, the wedding structure of the, of the Jewish people. And it's reflected in Jesus's teaching about the 10 virgins who went to the wedding feast and the fact that the wedding feast is a picture of the millennial kingdom in Matthew 22. But I think of it this way. Here we are as believers in the Lord Jesus. The church, the body of Christ, has never, ever been together, uh, except maybe for the first few months at Pentecost and there beyond. But that wouldn't last very long. So the next thing is that the Lord Jesus is going to gather his bride. And so we have what we call the rapture event. The rapture is the sudden supernatural removal of believers, those who have been saved since the day of Pentecost, to meet the Lord in the air. It's a very interesting thing, which I think is sometimes overlooked. In 1 Thessalonians 4, there the Apostle Paul says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. I think we need to emphasize the word himself. Jesus does not send a legion of angels to collect us. He himself is coming for his people. The reason for that, I think, is that that's exactly what took place in the Jewish wedding custom. The bridegroom would go to the house of the bride and get her and then bring her back to the father's house for the actual wedding ceremony. And so Jesus is going to come and get us. And then he is returning back to the father's house, which is exactly what would take place in the normal Jewish wedding. They go back to the father's house. And I think that's kind of what Jesus had in mind in John 14. I go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to come receive you unto myself. He is going to come get us. And it's this rather strange meeting in the air idea. I had a, someone ask me a question just this past week. They thought First Thessalonians 4 surely is talking about the second coming. But in the text itself, Jesus never comes back to the earth. He meets us in the air and then takes us back to the Father's house. Well, then that brings up the second event. And the second event is the marriage of the Lamb. Now that the bride is together in one place, we then read these verses in Revelation 19, verses 7, 8, and 9. It's in heaven, and there is great rejoicing for a number of reasons. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her, that is the bride, 
to clothe herself. This is uh, the wedding day. To clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. But then he goes on to explain something important. That what she is clothing herself with is not being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is sometimes how this used. The fine and linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints. Well, that's not a salvation issue, but what it is is a reward issue. And the picture is that the bride has now been rewarded. That means that after the rapture event, in preparing for the marriage ceremony, the bride will be rewarded, which is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why I, over the years, have told my students that if the rapture should occur at one o'clock in the afternoon, about 103, 104, give or take a few minutes, we're going to be appearing before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we don't like the word judgment. That scares us to death. But the point is, it's a time of evaluation. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the certainty of our salvation. That was a gift to us. But this has everything to do with good works, whether or not we have been faithful to Christ, whether or not we have lived our lives according to the dictates of the word of God, and also what does motivated us to do what we do. So the Lord Jesus, who spoke a lot about this, as did the Apostle Paul, as the writer of the Hebrews did, basically is saying that we are taken to heaven, and then the preparation for the wedding takes place, and that happens to be the preparation for the bride being rewarded. So the rapture is followed immediately by this time of evaluation, of the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, loves to give good gifts to his children. He's not tight-fisted, so we're trying to, you know, it's like uh, parents sometimes might do with a little kid for the fun of it. They'll put a few quarters in their hand and put their fist and see if the kid's working at getting the fingers off of those quarters. Uh, That is not at all what the Lord Jesus is like. He loves to give good gifts to his children. He is generous. He is kind. But the other thing is he's also holy. And out of holiness, the characteristic of God that we know about, flows justice. Justice is his holiness in dealing with people, people, angels, and men. And so he's got to be fair and just in the way he deals with us. So as Paul is clear, there is the possibility of great reward, but there's also the possibility of the loss of reward, and it is an individual matter. The whole idea that we accept Jesus as our Savior and everybody's the same forever is not at all taught in the New Testament. That's not a New Testament idea at all. That has flowed out of certain theologies. But the reality is that just as there's distinction of angels, you know, there's angels of great rank, some that are five-star angels and some that are buck private angels, there's distinctions in heaven. There were distinctions amongst the apostles. You have the three that, for whatever reasons, got to do some things the other three didn't. And then there's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm not sure how the other 11 handled that. But anyway, the point is that there are distinctions between people. That's why John says, remain in fellowship with him. Because there is what I call in my book, The Believer's Payday. Uh, there, There is a payday coming. It's not in this world, though God is generous and kind to us in this world as well. But in the you're talking about eternal consequences to how we live life now. And you're talking about eschatology. You started off talking about how eschatology, the study of things to come and knowing what lies ahead, motivates us in obedience and joy and endurance today. 
how much more so if, if I think that as long as I'm saved, it's all the same in the end, where's the motivation for obedience other than just the joy that I've been saved? I suppose that would be some motivation. But here you're saying that there's a Bema seat, a judgment seat of the church where we will stand before the Lord, not to reckon our salvation, but to be rewarded for faithfulness. I mean, that's an exciting prospect that I can be rewarded for how I endure in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord with no risk to my eternal security at all. That's right. And I don't know whether uh, what your views are on the book of Hebrews, but I have come to the conclusion that the book of Hebrews is not about the loss of salvation, but it's about the loss of reward in the messianic age, that that's what it's about. But again, you're right that uh, you're talking about something that has eternal consequences to it, because I'm not so sure that the rewards don't actually have a ripple effect throughout eternity, which answers the question of who are the kings in the eternal kingdom of God in Revelation 21? How do these guys make it to be kings of nations? Well, we just got to believe that they are incredibly faithful people who have honored Christ in life and maybe even in death being martyrs. We don't know. But again, we leave the bookkeeping to God on, on all of that kind of thing. Well, Jesus is pretty clear that the least in this world are the greatest in the kingdom, right? There's this great flip around. So when you're talking about the martyrs or the people who are trampled for the sake of the Lord in this life, they very well may be elevated in the life to come to those rulership statuses because of their faithfulness. Yeah. And that becomes one of the key individual uh, uh, issues of what's the criterion that we're going to be judged by. And I think Paul is very clear in First Corinthians when he talks about the wood hay and straw and the gold, silver, precious stone. The gold, silver, and precious stones in the context beginning in 1 Corinthians 1.13 is talking about the wisdom of God. A person who lives in the wisdom of God is going to be building with gold, silver, precious stones. The person who is living uh, according to tradition, according to experience, according to various kinds of philosophies that are not biblical are building with wood, hay, and straw. And so I don't see how a person can have a one world view and really be building with any kind of consistency with gold, silver, and precious stones. Paul says, you know, that those things are going up in smoke, though the person remains a believer. So anyway, the judgment seat of Christ is a big deal. The more you think about it, the greater sense that makes. Because, you know, if you and I are sitting at the local Tim Hortons having a cup of coffee, and I say to you, you know, Josiah, I'm saved, and I know I'm saved. Look, I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, zealous for the Lord, and I love the Lord too, but you know what? I've got to live my life, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep on the way I'm doing things, and I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm just so busy. You know, my business is booming, and I'm sure that later on I'm going to have more time to you know, maybe devote to doing stuff at the church and things like that, and yada, 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 on and on it goes. You maybe heard that. I sure have. Later on, we'll get around to this kind of thing. It's not that I'm against it. Well, the reality is that today is all we have, and you better be living today for the Lord. You're wise if you are, and that's what's going to come out at the judgment seat. So anyway, the rapture takes place. Immediately, we are in the presence of Christ. Oh, let me add one minor thing. If anybody is listening to this, I've had people say with some consistency, we shouldn't serve Christ because of what we're going to get from him, rewards. We should serve him because we love him. I don't deny that. However, when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 through verse 16, you uncover four things that motivated Paul. The first one happens to be rewards. And never, ever think 
that it is a, a substandard, a second-rate motive to serving Christ. It is Jesus himself who lays this out, and it's an issue of faith. Do I really believe that the payday is coming? Well, the answer is most Christians don't, or at least many of them don't. The fear of God, the love of the Lord, and his view of mankind he sees man as they really are, that they need Christ. That's what motivates him. So anyway, I understand when people say we ought to serve the Lord because we love him. Okay, let's get back to what I'm supposed to be doing here. Well, you've talked about so far the catching up with the church, the taking of the bride to be with the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, a couple of questions to follow up. What about if, if I'm a Christian and I'm living my life waiting for the imminent return of the Lord, he's going to come get us, but I die or fall asleep, as Paul says, before that happens. What happens to me as I wait for this rapture? Well, it's, it's hard to say, but what is clear is that our last breath taken upon earth, the next breath, if you wish, is in the presence of Christ. We don't, when we die, we don't walk through some long, dark tunnel with a light at the end of it. We don't walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We are immediately in Christ's presence. The other thing that is less clear is in what form we're going to be. I think that we are likely not going to be disembodied spirits. I think that we will have a bodily form, temporary bodies, perhaps. Part of that comes from the transfiguration event. When Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, we know that Moses's body was buried in the plains of Moab, but there he is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we know it's Moses because he has one of his name tags on. Hello, my name is Moses. Not really. Uh, anyway, but it is Moses and he's in bodily form. And this is before Christ's resurrection. So it is not difficult for God to have such things. We were created to be in bodies. And some have said, you know, that maybe it's, it is the resurrection body, but if not, probably in, uh, it's an, an intermediate body. And it's just, it's vague. People pointed out that the martyrs in, in Revelation 6 who are under the throne are given white robes. Why in the world would you give a white robe to a disembodied spirit? You know, that kind of thing. So it is, it is possible that we are in the presence of the Lord in bodily form of some sort, but maybe not the resurrection body. For the great creator God who's sovereign and all-powerful, that's not a big deal any more than giving a resurrection body to the sailor saint who fell overboard and, you know, a whole school of piranhas ate him and swam off in different directions, you know. Somehow God is going to be able to do that. Well, what's interesting in the book of Revelation chapter 19, where I was reading, after the bride gets fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints, he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, just as is often the case in the way we do, weddings today, that the wedding ceremony oftentimes is in a chapel, in a church, and maybe the wedding supper, the dinner, is at El Swanko Country Club or, you know, something like that. It's in a different location. I have arrived at the conclusion that the marriage supper of the Lamb, which has not occurred yet, the judgment seat has, and now the wedding itself, the marriage where we are united with Christ. By the way, 
a question for folks. What is the purpose of a wedding anyway? Well, the primary purpose is to unite two people so that they are now husband and wife and they are together. Where one goes, the other goes. Chances are most people didn't get married and one will say, well, you know, I'm going to go to New York. I'll meet you in Dallas next year. That probably is not the way it usually works. We are not surprised then that later on, when Jesus returns at his second coming, heaven is opened, verse 11, a white horse, he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, goes on to describe the Lord Jesus' robe dipped in blood. And the armies which are in heaven, who are those? Well, they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. I had a question from a lady one time. He said, well, my pastor says that when Jesus comes back at the second coming, that we remain in heaven. And she was kind of concerned that we wouldn't then be a part of the messianic age. And I said, well, look, if you look at Revelation 19, there's a couple of things there. Number one, we are married now. We have been separated from the bridegroom all of our lives, the church has. Now we are united. And furthermore, to prove that we are no longer separated, him going to earth while we hang out in heaven, we come with him. Of course, some of my students like this whole idea of being up close and personal at Armageddon kind of stokes their fires. You know, but The point is that the only ones wearing white linen, bright and clean, have already been defined in earlier verses. We come back with him. And why? Because I believe personally that the marriage supper is, in fact, the messianic age. And while we don't know in great detail what happens to believers who are part of the church, the reality is we are with the Lord. And how that plays out, we simply haven't been given enough information in the text. But I think that those are the three things. The bridegroom comes and gets us. We appear to be evaluated, which is followed then by the marriage, which is then followed by the marriage supper or the wedding feast, the messianic age. That's what's in store for us. Then when the messianic age has completed and the prophets of the Old Testament describe it in great detail, a time of peace, a time of joy. In fact, uh, Hebrews and other passages, that's what's going to characterize the messianic age, that of joy. I've often thought, how much joy have we experienced in our lives? In our best moments, when we are flooded with joy, it lasts 30, 45 seconds. You know, it's very short-lived. I'd say that somewhat facetiously. But the point is that this world, joy is not the predominant characteristic and, and atmosphere. There's going to be um, no curse. So the curse is lifted. It's going to be a fertile world. I live out here in Phoenix, Arizona. There's a lot of desert out here. Now, you, you folks north of the border, you do not know what open land looks like that's barren, and there's a lot of it out there, but that's, you know, streams in the desert and all of that kind of thing. So it's going to be an absolutely incredible age. We're back to one language again. There is no sickness. There is no deformity. It's just uh, marvelous. And then when the thousand years is up, then you asked about our future, and our future includes the eternal kingdom of God. As Peter says, more than Revelation does, where John writes, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, three times tells us that this universe, not just the earth, but the entire universe is going to go out of existence with a roar. I like to say I believe in the Big Bang, but it's at the end. 
That's what terminates it all. It goes out of existence. Why? Well, because eternity, contrary to what was told me as a kid growing up, I don't spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. The question arises is why in the world is God going to create a new earth? The answer is very simple. To understand Revelation 21 and 22, you have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, because that was God's original purpose and original design. We are going to be here on a new earth, an exact replica of the one that was originally created, which is why I think John says that there's no more oceans, because when we look at our world, we see 70% of it covered by water. That apparently is not what the original earth was like at all. I don't know what percentage was there, but it's maybe more like 25%, you know, with water. So I don't know. But the point is that it's going to be a new earth. And why? Because God's original plan was excellent. It was beautiful. It was good. I mean, that's what Genesis 1 says, doesn't it? After each day of creation, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And when he's all done, it is very good. We're going back to that. So that's what lies ahead for us. And so it really makes sense. I mean, just sit and logically think about this. Why not expend yourself for 70, 80 years, whatever the Lord might give you, and to serve him with due diligence in the power of the Spirit, guided by the Word of God? Why not live that way? The payoff is absolutely incredible for us as believers. That's a great encouraging word as we come to an end of our time together. Think about that original plan where God said to Adam and Eve to fill the earth, to exercise dominion, and to really spread Eden over the globe. God has not abandoned that plan. Correct. He will not be thwarted. And, And that is something that God is going to make come to pass. And we are going to dwell in an identified world and doing who knows what some of the same things maybe we enjoy now just without the burdens of sin and all its effects yeah well i remember when i was growing up i had a sunday school teacher mrs slater mrs slater taught us junior boys mrs slater had no business teaching junior boys but my guess is she's the only one the church could get you know that was willing to do it and i remember her saying to us one day boys want to be great when we are with jesus forever and we, we sit to think, well, the options available to us, you know, with all we knew were heaven and hell, I guess heaven would be obviously the better one. But really, we're not too excited about all this because we had the idea that when we get to heaven, that's when we are given this super thick hymn book. And we sit in the pew and go from hymn one to two, three. And then when we're done with the hymn book, we start over again. And when we begin to realize that You know, you love the great outdoors, you love mountains and streams and all of that. God created that originally, and it must have been incredible. Uh, When we look at our world today, there's so many beautiful places there. My wife grew up in the Muskoka Lake region, and I've been up there many, 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 many times. Such a beautiful area, aside from the fact that it has too many people there now. But other than that, it's a beautiful area. And this is the world that's been cursed. You can only imagine what it would be like otherwise. So we have an incredible future from a God who loves us deeply and a God who is so creative in the way he has made things. He has given us five senses. And why does he do that? So that we can enjoy fully his creation. And that we will do. In the meantime, as Jesus said, do business until I come. 
That's great. There's another podcast I listen to once in a while where the speaker often closes with the same benediction. And it goes something like this. He says, and remember that the rumors of grace, forgiveness, and the redemption of all things are true. Everything is going to be okay. And that's such a great word of benediction as we think about the chaos of this world. And as Christians, we have the blessing of knowing what is to come. We have a blessing of knowing how it ends and the redemption of all things is included there. Everything is going to be okay. Put your mind on things above, the things to come, and endure with hope and peace and joy as we anticipate what has been promised. Amen and amen. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Ben Ware, for your time and for your expertise and and your service to the church at large. I've benefited from your work, and I'm sure that many listening to us uh, talk today have as well. And so thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. My privilege. And thanks, listener, for joining us this week. Remember, as Jesus said in Luke 21, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Grace and peace to you and yours. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.